This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Hello and welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Michael Hertzfeld, the Ernest E. Monrad Research Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard University. Hertzfeld has authored numerous books and articles on a wide array of ethnographic, geographical, and theoretical topics. His latest book, Subversive Archaism, explores the politics of national culture and heritage through a comparative analysis of two sites. First, Zonia Na on the Greek island of Crete, and second, Palm Mahakan in Bangkok, Thailand. In the following discussion, Hertzfeld describes subversive archaism and some related concepts to explore their utility for contemporary cultural theory. Without further ado, here is Michael Hertzfeld. Michael Hertzfeld, thank you for joining us on the channel to talk about your new book. My pleasure. Thank you. So you began your career as a scholar of Southern Europe, and then you moved your research interests into Southeast Asia. Can you just introduce your academic biography to start? How would you describe your intellectual trajectory, particularly as it relates to this book? I think that uh, as an anthropologist, I'm in a discipline that encourages all sorts of serendipity, and possibly the most important kind of serendipity is when you happen on a community that turns out to be interesting, uh, both of the communities I describe in, in the book, uh, both Greek one and the Thai one, are places that I hadn't originally intended to go to. Um, I found myself uh, looking for a village in Greece that would be somewhat similar to the one I'd previously studied in, in, in Rhodes. Um, I didn't want to go back there at the time. It, it was during a very difficult period for Greece, uh, right at the end of the military regime and after. And the military regime kicked me out of the country. Um, so obviously I wasn't too happy about going back to the place where that originated. I've never been told why. Um, but uh, uh, was looking for a, a comparable village on Crete, which is an island I'd also come to know fairly well, and went to the wrong bus stop. And there met an elderly man who said, you don't, when he found out what I was interested in, he said, you don't want to go there. You want to go up to Minopotamos, the region where Zonjana is located. And uh, then he introduced me to a bus conductor who was from there and my wife and I took off in the bus, and that was probably the best piece of accidental anthropology that could have happened to me. But also in the case of Bomahakan, I had become interested in Thailand. Um, I, I went there originally to see one of my closest and oldest friends, who is Thai, and uh, then discovered that there were certain things about the country that seemed very familiar. Part of that was because I'd grown up going to a, a high school in London where there were several Thai students and I used to hang out with them quite a bit. And so I was somewhat used to the mannerisms, the sound of the language and so on. But I think it was something stronger. It, it was a certain sense of a combination of adulation and resentment of the West that seemed very similar to what I encountered in Greece. Uh, and I think that it was pondering that similarity that eventually 
led me to conceive of the notion of a form of colonialism that was cultural rather than military or uh, economic, and I call that crypto-colonialism. So that, in a nutshell, is part of the trajectory, and I didn't intend to go to Pomahakan either. I, I was looking at six communities also in the same part of old Bangkok, um, but uh, discovered that it wasn't really very easy to get conversations started, especially as at that point my tie was very halting. And I was asked by a, a, an NGO activist if I wanted to go to Pomahakan. And I thought, well, why not, since I've got nothing else to do, there's nothing else on the agenda. And so I agreed and went there, and they were talking at that very moment in their protest about uh, precisely the thing I was interested in, which is the meaning of history and of the history of, of a place, especially a place that had been subject to historic conservation for the people living there. And they were facing eviction from that place. So uh, there again, serendipity uh, turned out to be a, a rather benign formula. Uh, the other places I've done fieldwork in, uh, one was uh, on, on, on a coastal town in Crete, in Rathibno. That was where I first really began to work on the impact of historic conservation on local populations, and that led to my current interest in, in heritage, in critical heritage studies. Uh, that was the town of Rathibno, or Rathibnos, as they call it locally. And uh, then... Uh, also, of course, I have done extensive field work in Rome. Uh, that was also, as with Rathimnos, a, a, a careful decision. It was a place I decided I wanted to do field work in. I, at that point, I felt I didn't, needed a break from working in Greece. I had wanted to work in Turkey, but the place that I'd selected, uh, there was in, the, in that place there was already a, a, a Greek a graduate student who was uh, doing her research, and I didn't want to... Uh, crowd her out. I thought it was a small place. Uh, and so I rethought my plans. I already spoke Italian, and that's how I ended up going to Rome. And in Rome also, of course, I was working on issues having to do with gentrification and eviction. So uh, towards the latter part of my career, those have been uh, very dominant themes and have also actuated my interest in the politics of heritage. And that, of course, is what uh, the new book is all about. Yeah, those threads all pretty clearly weave together in this new book. Um, so we should just say for listeners, the new book is Subversive Archaism, Troubling Traditionalists and the Politics of National Heritage, uh, published by Duke University Press. You introduce a whole bunch of fertile concepts in the book, um, but I think it's probably best to just start with the titular phrase. So what is subversive archaism? How do you define that? So these are uh, communities that uh, essentially are saying, we represent national culture much better than the bureaucrats. Uh, both Greece and Thailand have cultural bureaucracies. Uh, they have other kinds of bureaucracies as well. Uh, and actually, I've made a practice of studying bureaucrats as well as other kinds of people. And despite whatever impression may be given, I also have some sympathy for the plight of bureaucrats, especially those who are caught in the law orders uh, of their systems. But uh, to get back to subversive archaism, uh, these people, uh, for a variety of reasons, have come to conceive of themselves as representing national culture uh, without the apparatus of state. So for them, there's a separation between the state which, uh, for which they either 
have contempt or which they experience as hostile on the one hand, and the nation to which they're fiercely loyal. And this makes them a, a, a real problem for uh, the what I now call the the bureaucratic ethno-national state. I prefer that rather cumbersome phrase to nation-state because I think what people forget is that the bureaucratization of ethnicity as nationhood is a relatively recent phenomenon, and especially its uh, enshrinement in the idea of a state structure. Uh, the subversive archaeists are people who whether consciously or otherwise, are reacting to that framework. They can manage very well, thank you, without the state. What they want to make clear is that they have learned from the state something about the terms in which the nation conceives itself, the language, if you will, of tradition, heritage, and history. They know how to talk about that language and to use it themselves, but they don't accept the authority of the state as defining what those things are. So that's essentially what subversive archaeists are. They are looking at archaic models. And I might add that one of the things I talk about extensively in the book is something that, uh, until recently anyway, um, critical heritage studies specialists haven't really focused on very much, which is the idea of social structure as a kind of heritage. So they are actually opposing to the top-down a bureaucratic structure of the state, a different form, a more self-organizational form, if you will. In the case of the Cretan village, Zunyana, uh, that form is the patrilineal clan. Uh, it's one of the very few places left in Greece where you will find such patrilineal clans, very powerful ones at that. Um, and in the case of Bomahakan, uh, perhaps a little bit more indirectly through invocation, I'm never quite sure how where they are of the historical antecedents in this sense, they are appealing to a pre-state form of social organization also, which in Thai is known as Meng, uh, and which has a very long and deep and wide history, uh, not just in Thailand itself, but in the whole Thai language area. I'd love to read a quote from the book. In the introduction, you write, quote, Local groups with distinctive cultural styles reveal the liability that the nation-state accepts in deploying the concept of heritage as its conceptual banner. Rebellious citizens can point to historical antecedents and their local cultural heritage that not only are older than the state itself, but also represent alternatives to, alternatives to its disciplined modernity. Uh, so I think that sums up nicely what you're talking about. And you mentioned that such communities often embrace even more than the state in many ways, the discourse of national heritage and traditionalism. So in one sense, it, it's a strange thing because in one sense, they're fashioning themselves as exemplars of the nation rather than oppositional factions necessarily. And yet at the same time, you make it very clear that this doesn't make them less of a problem from the perspective of this bureaucratic state that you're talking about. So can you just talk a bit more about what is the relationship in general terms uh, between these subversive archaeists and the bureaucratic ethno-national state, as you termed it? Well, you know, in a way, it's the situation is exactly the opposite of what we would normally expect, because we've been hoodwinked, let's face it, all of us around the globe, into thinking that the nation state is the ultimate uh, destination for human social organization. Uh, and what these guys understand very well is that that isn't necessarily the case. 
uh, that they can manage quite well, as I said, without the state uh, in certain respects. And this makes their traditionalism even more of a problem for the state because they can fight back to, at the state saying, why are you bullying us like this? Why are you mistreating us? Why do you regard us as the lowest of the low? When actually, for example, Zonyani steal sheep from other villages in relations of reciprocity. They steal from each other. This is a network uh, of uh, mutual acquaintance among tough men uh, that some classicizing scholars might even want to trace back to Homeric times where you know, there's some evidence that there were similar practices. Actually, these practices are known in pastoral societies around the world. But what the Zonyani are saying is, we're doing something here that really belongs to our national past. And of course, this is something the state can't stomach because it's a violation of the law against theft, quite simply. There's also another built-in paradox here because uh, the state, uh, as Weber presents it, uh, is essentially supposed to be a, a, a modern project. And yet, it needs that traditionalism, but it needs to be able to control it. These, these people are saying, we understand tradition, and we are not constrained by the sort of modernist project that leads you to be such featureless, uh, unsympathetic and generally uh, unimaginative uh, uh, managers of the nation. But it all comes back again uh, to that relationship between the state and the nation. I remember the late Ben Anderson saying at a conference we were both speaking at that the nation and the state uh, were in a rather uneasy relationship. He said There's, that hyphen represents a rather shaky marriage, but he doesn't think that it will collapse in divorce. In a way, I don't think that the subversive archaeists necessarily want it to collapse in divorce either, but they want a space in which they can be more autonomous than the state is inclined to let them. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good uh, turning point to get into these two specific case studies that are kind of the cornerstones of the book. I mean, you have lots of empirical data in the book, but I think these two studies from uh, Bangkok and Greece are the two that um, that sort of anchor the book uh, and all the things Absolutely. you're talking about. So I apologize if I butcher these pronunciations, but can you start by introducing Zonan, Zonyana and um, just let us know if our unfamiliar listeners, what is the context there? Who lives there? And how does that community articulate with respect to the broader nation? So Zonyana is a village of now about 450 people. When I was doing field work there in the mid-1970s, from 1974 on, um, it, it had about 1,450 people, um, although I think that the population drain has now slowed considerably. In fact, maybe some people are coming back more. It's hard to assess populations in Greece anyway because the numbers represent uh, electoral residence figures uh, and, and people may not actually be living where they are registered. Um, but that's another story. So Zonyana is one of a set of villages in on the northern slopes of Mount Ida, uh, and there's a whole other set in the far west of the island, in Svakia, that are considered to be the home of more traditional Cretan uh, practices. Crete, of course, as an island, has long been known for its pastoralism, and in the old days, when I was first doing my field work, the shepherds were transhumant. That is, they 
migrated between winter and summer pastures. The summer pastures were just above the village, and they would live in the village. The winter pastures were down by the coast, and they would have arrangements uh, for staying down there, leaving the village very much more in the hands of their wives. And now, with the arrival of motorized transportation, uh, with uh, cell phones, I remember there was one telephone for the whole village, and the uh, man who was known as the telephonist would announce over a loud hailer any time there was a call uh, coming in for someone. Sometimes he did it just because he wanted to trick someone into coming to play cards with him. Uh, um, and that gives you a little bit of a flavor of how these people are. They are very, they're very tricksterish. Uh, one of my favorite stories is about uh, some policemen who came in and were invited to have a meal. And, of course, you don't refuse hospitality at a place like that. It would be considered very insulting. And when they'd finished the meal, their host said, well, uh, now you can go back to your base because you've eaten all the evidence. They were looking for evidence about a, a particular uh, sheep theft. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they have a tremendous sense of humor. They're tough because they have to be tough. In those days, they were also, uh, they tended, men were always, almost always armed uh, with knives and guns. And actually, it was said that at that time, there were 70 machine guns concealed in the village, most of them left over from World War II. Uh, now, this uh, aspect of their lives might have gone relatively unnoticed, but gradually, some of them started indulging in cultivating cannabis, which is still illegal in Greece, and uh, they were also uh, thought to be engaging in gun running, um, and maybe a few of them also in other even less savory activities. Now, I think you and I both know that it would be totally inappropriate to castigate an entire community for the actions of a few, uh, and also uh, we can see how those activities might uh, be recast in their own eyes as simply uh, their reaction to modernity. What do you do? We know how to handle guns, for example. Um, and also there's some indication that they were put under pressure by outside elements, but we don't know. And we don't really have reliable numbers, but I think that those who were involved in those Ill illegal activities were a small minority. What most people did have was guns and knives in their houses, if not on their persons. And so when, uh, and apparently what was going on was that the police, or someone in the police force, would tip the villagers off every time there was going to be a raid. So there was a collusive relationship between the police and the village. Uh, when in 2007, uh, a villager, uh, I'm sorry, a policeman was uh, was shot and eventually died from his wounds, um, the state reacted, I think, overreacted by punishing the entire village, essentially locking the village down, flooding it with uh, commando-type troops, uh, and um, humiliating the villagers in various ways. To what extent the people in Athens had any knowledge of how these forces were behaving is unknown, and I would suspect that they didn't actually know very much about it. People in Athens now know the name of that village. It's become synonymous with violence. Uh, I tell the story in the book of an American friend who wanted to visit with his family and was told in a lowland village that uh, it was a dangerous place. And when he explained that he was coming to visit me, a colleague, uh, his hostess said, well, 
but your colleague doesn't sleep there at night, does he? So, um, you know, you get the idea that, that this was a, uh, this, this village has now become a synonym for uh, illegality, violence, and dangerous crime. And of course, as a whole, it's nothing of the sort. I, I'm sure there are still some incidents of animal theft, uh, but it's notable that even back in the 70s, as shepherds started to steal sheep for commercial reasons rather than as a basis for establishing social relations with other villagers, the older shepherds banded together to try to create uh, pressures to stop that from happening. They didn't want to see it corrupted by money. Uh, and they were very emphatic about that. And I think something very similar is happening now in the village in that more sober members of the village community uh, are really uh, very angry about those few who were involved in the ambush. What apparently happened was that it became known in the village that the police were about to uh, conduct an, uh, a search. Uh, again, it, we think that probably somebody in the police force tipped them off. And a few young hotheads decided to ambush the police, and that's when the guy got killed. So uh, this, uh, of course, has made the village uh, both defensive, but also, I think, very aware that in its management of violence, uh, it actually has customs that are very effective. And they will point out to any visitor who wants to talk about this that the actual incidence of homicide in the village is far lower than that of any city in Greece. Uh, because, of course, the vendetta, which is conducted along clan lines, uh, results, uh, if it's allowed to run unchecked, uh, in the wiping out of an entire family, maybe an entire clan or sub-clan. And so they, there is also a ritual of reconciliation, which got totally ignored in the press until quite recently. Now, there has been one article that actually mentions it, but that's really recent. And so uh, the press became uh, somewhat collusive with the state in representing Zonyana as this fearful, dangerous place. Interestingly enough, both the press and the uh, uh, the police were using the same term, uh, avato in Greek, meaning a place you can't set foot in, untrodden, both for Zonyana and for an area of Athens that's considered to be very dangerous, where incidentally my Greek publisher is located, where one can often go and have very nice meals in rather nice uh, chic restaurants. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, let's say, ideological construction of remoteness going on or of inaccessibility, both in the city and up there on the mountain. Uh, the village was remote, I suppose, in the old days, but there now rose not only linking the village to the main towns, but also allowing people to go up into the mountains uh, with uh, uh, wheeled vehicles, which also means, of course, that the men don't have to go to winter pastures anymore. So they're, not, they're, they're there the whole year round now. So that more or less is the context uh, of Zonyana. Uh, of Maybe now we can turn to Thailand and you can uh, give a similar kind of contextual introduction to Pomahakan in Bangkok. Thank you. Yes, Pomahakan is a very interesting uh, case, in fact, because uh, while it, it's not unique in having faced eviction and eventually been forced to uh, succumb to that, uh, its long history of resistance. It fought against being evicted wholesale for 25 years, quarter of a century, makes it rather different. 
Um, and what impressed me immediately when I first made contact with the uh, residents was that they, uh, they were very well organized. Uh, they had managing committee, they had president and a treasurer, uh, they had uh, units or zones uh, with a particular representative then in charge of the day-to-day -day management uh, there. Um, fairly late on in uh, the processes that I described, they began to um, have meetings uh, to think about where they might want to locate their houses uh, in the event of being allowed to remain. Actually, it happened not so close to the end. It happened when there was, at one point, there was hope that they might be allowed to remain. They were aware that technically they were breaking the law by remaining where they were because they had accepted uh, compensation. But it was very clear that the compensation was inadequate. And they were proposing uh, a plan to stay and be a model traditional Thai community that without prostituting itself to uh, tourism uh, would nonetheless be a place that tourists could enjoy, could walk through, uh, because it's very close to the Temple of the Golden Mount. It's situated right in the symbolic core of uh, Krung Ratanakosi, the old royal foundation, the old royal city. And so, uh, and they also, by the way, for the, for the most part, uh, were uh, fairly fierce monarchists, um, Many of them wear yellow shirts during the confrontation between the yellow shirts and the red shirts, uh, the latter being supporters of the ousted premier Taksin. So, you know, th th these people saw themselves as not only traditional, but upholding the, the values of the traditional polity. And I want to make the distinction here between polity and state, because the state, as, as I've been trying to make clear, is only one version of, uh, of the of a polity. Um, the early foundation uh, of Bangkok as the capital of what was then Siam in 1782 uh, was the, it was made it the capital of Amung in the sense that I've already mentioned, that is of a, uh, a space conceived as a projection uh, of the mandala uh, onto terrestrial existence. Uh, and maps of Ayutthaya, the previous capital, show exactly how that model worked. Uh, and uh, in fact, the early, the, the wall that was set up between 1782 and 1786, uh, the, the perimeter wall of Bangkok, uh, with its 14 uh, crenellated fortresses, uh, defined the outer edge of the Mung. But of course, beyond the wall, uh, there was also territorial control. It's just that it, it could shrink and grow according to the power located at the center. So it was not a clearly defined static cartographic territory uh, as uh, then it became, uh, as Siam morphed into uh, a nation state, particularly uh, in, the in the reigns of Rama IV and Rama V. So... Um, Bomakan had at that time about 300 inhabitants. Uh, many of them were food sellers. Uh, they accepted that they were in violation of the law, but what they were asking was, uh, a first of all, a reform of the law, but they also wanted uh, to be allowed to remain uh, as, as it were, guests, but also employees of the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration, they felt that they could make much better care of that fortress because they're right next to, in fact, on means fortress, 
uh, and Bomahakan is technically the one of the 14 fortresses and one of the only two to survive. So what happened to the rest? And this is the interesting story. Bomahakan is located exactly at the point of rupture physically between the old Meng and the modern uh, national capital. Uh, in the reign of Rama V, uh, the authorities built uh, what is now called Ratchadamnern Avenue. Uh, the name of the avenue is wonderfully ambiguous because some people think it's modeled on Queensway in London, um, but it means something like the king's progress. Whether it alludes to the progress of the nation under the king or the fact that the king would parade up and down in what was then the only motor car on the only major road in Bangkok um, or something else is not clear, but it's obviously connected with the idea of moving forward, modernity, and so on. And it smashed its way right through the old Meng wall. Uh, the result was that the wall began to fall into disrepair in various places, and eventually all but the two of the 14 uh, uh, fortresses or citadels survived. The other one is at uh, uh, Pont and it's right on the river. And here's another irony, that the, uh, the, the, the idea uh, behind... Pomahakan was that you could put cannon in the embrasures, and they're still there to be seen, that could fire down onto the river Chopreya uh, if the French dared, as part of their colonizing uh, adventures, to sail up the river. They could be repelled from that fortress. By the time of Rama V, it was clear that the French were not going to invade because Thailand had already begun to accept that in exchange for nominal independence, it had to uh, accept some pretty humiliating territorial concessions and also trading agreements with Britain and France in particular. Uh, but Rama V is said to have called Ratchadamnan Avenue the Champs-Élysées of Asia. So while the French didn't have to invade militarily, they in fact invaded culturally in this crypto-colonial sense, and I imagine we'll want to come back also to the question of crypto-colonialism later in our conversation. Anyway, the people of Bamahakan were astute historians. They gathered all sorts of information. There was one elderly man who'd been a, a palace policeman who wasn't living in the community anymore, but he found evidence, for example, that uh, this was the site of the earliest performances of the Lique, you know, the, the uh, dance drama performances in Bangkok. Um, they uh, were very aware that some of the professions that were carried out by members of the community represented the state's vision of typical Thai culture. So you had Thai boxing, you had a, somebody who was an expert in training people to be boxers in Muay Thai. You also had a very expert masseur, and the only person I might add I've ever allowed to massage my eyeballs, and I can't tell you how relaxing it was, but it would have been terrifying from almost anyone else. Um, and uh, uh, somebody who made uh, little uh, ceramic images of ascetic Buddhist monks. Uh, there was a man who made uh, bird cages, and then there was a man who trained fighting cocks as well. So we had all of these traditional, so-called traditional uh, occupations represented on site, as well as the production of a wide range of food representing virtually all the provinces of Thailand. So in a way, this community was like a little microcosm uh, of the country as a whole. Uh, it had enormous internal diversity because 
the people who were now living there had come from many different parts of the country. Uh, the original foundation was in the reign of Rama III and was uh, a royal concession to some bureaucrats who were settled there. But by the time uh, I came on the scene, uh, there was hardly anyone there who could claim any kind of connection. Uh, there were some families who had been there a long time. Whether they were actually connected with those original bureaucrats, I think, is is an open question. But certainly there were families who had been there for several generations. The BMA, the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration, objected on two grounds. One, that they thought these people had come from all over the place and were just squatters. And two, uh, that they didn't represent, as one person put it to me, a real Thai community because, as the same person said, a real Thai community grows out of a single profession, like a village of monks begging bowl makers or a village of, uh, of, of paper umbrella manufacturers and so on. Um, now, not all Thais would agree with that definition, but it goes to show, I think, the extent to which the authorities were fighting back at the level of discourse that the residents of Pomahakan had forced them to fight back at, namely uh, to, to talk about what was really traditional to Thailand. Yeah, the word real is doing a lot of legwork in that characterization, no? Yes, well, of course. I mean, the, 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 the idea, obviously, of both sides is to construct a reality. And I'm not accusing anyone of lying. I think they had very different visions of what that reality is. Um, again, as an anthropologist, I, I assume that there's a real world there that we all inhabit, and we share a lot of perceptions about it. But our understandings, when they differ that much, are also part of the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the book, you, you spend a lot of time sort of comparing these two case studies, Zonia Na and Pom Mahakan. And I'm interested, actually, in one of the points of contrast that you raise, specifically the way in which Greece sort of fancies itself as an origin point for European heritage more broadly whereas Thailand sort of makes no such claims to being a cradle of some Asian civilization. So can you just reflect a little bit on this difference? It's sort of a a discussion you raise in the book, even if it's not your main point. I found it really fascinating. Sure. Well, I've always been a comparativist. And, you know, comparison is like metaphor. In a metaphor, you have two things that aren't alike and yet are alike. And the shock of the metaphor is to make you see the likeness where before you'd only seen the unlikeness. When I started doing research in in Greece, I did what you might call controlled comparisons, looking at three villages, uh, but looking at them only in terms of their inheritance practices, for example. That's what I would call a controlled comparison. Uh, But I think that the more outrageous comparisons appear to be, when there's something there, the more revealing they become. So, for example, people have often said to me, and this is the larger context for your question, we can understand you comparing Greece and Italy, because they're both Southern European Mediterranean countries, but Greece and Thailand, and I would say, well, in some respects, Greece and Thailand have much more in common than Greece and Italy. Greece and Thailand have these characteristics that I call crypto-colonialism. Italy doesn't have any of that, and Italy, in fact, is a much more fragmented country culturally Um, because it was under a lot of different rulers. And also, uh, there has been a consistent policy of encouraging cultural diversity for much of Italy's history, especially recently. Uh, And that's not something that you really find in 
in Thailand or in Greece. Although, again, attitudes, you know, I don't want to characterize any country as being absolutely uniform in any respect. Narrowing this down now to these uh, two, two nation states, Greece and, and Thailand, both of them, I think, see themselves as bearers of what an old-fashioned anthropology might have called a great tradition. Uh, of course, you're absolutely right, and I, I, I think I pointed this out more than once, that, that um, uh, Thailand doesn't make a claim to being the originator of anyone else's culture, but it does claim to have, and, and justifiably so, that's not really the issue, a, a very sophisticated uh, culture with a, a, a literary uh, and uh, musical and artistic uh, set of dimensions uh, that are of interest worldwide. Um, more to the point, I think, Thailand managed by dint of adopting some Western practices, including Western modes of dressing, to convince the British and the French that they really were more or less civilized. In fact, they adopted the English word See, we lie. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, a, a Thai word now. Um, in the reign, particularly of Rama V, uh, and by the middle of the 20th century, the uh, westernization, of, especially of dress, had proceeded apace. We see the same thing, by the way, in Turkey, which is another crypto-colonial state. In Greece also. Uh, I mean, you don't see Greeks walking around in traditional Greek dress, except for National Independence Day celebrations and things of that kind. Um, the irony was that by the, uh, by the 1940s, uh, the dictator, uh, Pibun uh, Plak Songkram, had actually uh, promulgated a poster, which, as you may recall, is, is in the book, um, in which, under the heading Watanatam Thai, Thai culture, he then has two images. Uh, one is a set of people dressed in traditional Siamese costume. The other, a, a group of people who look, if anything, uh, more or less like um, uh, like uh, the one's image of, of colonial British people in India. Um, and on the traditional side, there's an injunction not to be like this. To be Thai, you had to dress Western style. So the paradox was right there. Uh, he also uh, got the uh, Thai people to accept using Western utensils instead of eating with their hands. And to this day, Bangkokians see the Isan habit of eating with the right hand uh, and mopping things up with sticky rice as a sign of a relative lack of civilization of the poorest province in the country. Um, you know, there are, there are hierarchical dynamics here uh, that have to do with an attempt to approximate to uh, Western civilization. On the Greek side, you had a rather different dynamic. Uh, the Greeks were very aware that many Western Europeans felt that they were not living up to the promise of their ancient ancestors. In fact, some Westerners even claimed that they weren't descended from uh, the ancient Greeks at all. And, and, of course, in the 19th century, the distinction that we make between genetic and cultural inheritance wasn't being made very clearly at all, if, if at all. Uh, one very interesting marker that perhaps shows why these cases are more similar than might first appear from your question is the common use of the root frank, frangos in Greek and farang in Thai. Mm -hmm. 
Frangos in Greek refers to people from Western Europe. It, the implication is that they're blonde and blue-eyed um, and that they represent this treacherous part of Europe that wants to use the Greeks and manipulate them for its own purposes, but also involves some admiration uh, and includes perhaps uh, a desire to emulate Westerners in dress, uh, in learning, uh, in literacy, and so on. And farang has an almost identical meaning uh, in uh, in Thai. It apparently was taken down into Southeast Asia by probably by uh, Persian and Arab traders, and it exists in their languages as well. It also, by the way, another version of that word appears in Ethiopia, so which is another crypto colonial or was a crypto-colonial state until the Italians decided to make it truly colonial uh, under under fascism. But, you know, the thing is that that, that word is, uh, for me, a real indication of these larger processes in which both Greece and Thailand were embedded. And the defensiveness about what constitutes national culture is itself very much part of that process as well, or a product, should I say, of that process. Maybe now we should jump ahead just for a minute or take a little detour so that you can actually define crypto-colonialism, which is a sort of term that you've you've coined in previous publications, and I think you're continuing to work with this concept moving forward. In fact, that's actually one of the first conversations we ever had here in Leiden was about this term, crypto-colonialism. What is this term, and how does it maybe relate to subversive archaism as you're defining it in this book? Right. Well, first of all, you know, I recall that first conversation. And of course, you're interested in Nepal. The fact you've worked in Nepal and you're continuing to do research on Nepal uh, uh, is very interesting to me because Nepal is another case that one could consider in this category, although I think some Nepalis might be offended by the word. But then some Greeks certainly been offended by the word. And I've been attacked in the Greek press and also supported. Uh, on the whole, and I think this will shortcut to the heart of the matter if I tell you this, those who don't like the term are the agents of continuing colonial interference in their countries, or at least agents of the continuing adulation of Western culture uh, in their countries, whereas those who are comfortable with the term are pleased that at least one, one Westerner is recognizing uh, the injustice that is done to these countries, because the problem for Greece and Thailand and Nepal and many other states, uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, possibly um, China, you know, there, there are all kinds of implications here, countries that have been humiliated but not actually militarily invaded uh, are claiming that they never actually were under the colonial yoke with in the case of Greece, for example, some exceptions, the Ionian Islands were a British province for a while, or a British colony, rather. Um, and, of course, there was the Venetian occupation, and Greece itself was part of the Ottoman Empire. There was no Greek nation-state until uh, it declared independence in 1821. There had never been one. People forget that the ancient Greek polis were rather quarrelsome, uh, much smaller entities, uh, that fought with each other. So, to cut to the chase, for me, crypto-colonialism is a condition in which a country claims to be independent, but has had to make sometimes humiliating sacrifices in order to maintain that independence. And that uh, relationship can only be maintained if a local establishment 
is willing essentially uh, to uh, provide the sort of governmentality, if you will, uh, that assures the colonial powers that it's not advantageous for them to invade. Now, some uh, of these uh, establishment figures were certainly very clever. Rama V, Chalalakon in Thailand, uh, certainly understood the need to do this. So he's praised for what he did, for having saved Thailand from being completely invaded, but of course, territorial concessions were made during his reign. Um, and there are those who interpret his role very differently. Um, the same uh, can certainly be said of the uh, political establishment in Greece. Uh, I often say that uh, instead of praising uh, Greece for being the cradle of democracy in the 5th century BCE, when anyway it was only Athens, um, Barack Obama, uh, when he... Uh, visited Greece shortly before leaving office, should have praised them for what they did in 1821, when for the first time uh, a government was elected without the overt support or even covert support of either the United States or Britain and France. Um, I mean, that that is a sign, I think, that Greece has begun a very successful transition out of the crypto-colonial condition. Uh, Greece is today a flourishing democracy. I would argue one of the very few, in fact, in the world today. Uh, and I am not even sure that Britain and the United States can match Greece for the uh, liberty that people uh, are enjoying, even under a relatively right-wing, in fact, a very right-wing government, but it's a democratically elected government. And that, I think, is the important difference. Um, in Thailand, we have a very different situation, as you know. And in Thailand, uh, the situation just seems to get stuck all the time. There doesn't seem to be much movement. Uh, whether that will change, because obviously the dynamics on the ground are changing, and there's a youth that is very disaffected now, uh, remains to be seen. But um, the diagnostic feature of Crypto-colonialism is the battle cry, we were never under colonialism. So uh, I was approached some years ago by some Icelandic scholars who wanted to have a discussion about whether Iceland could be considered to be a crypto-colony of Denmark. Iceland, for a, a long period of time, was under the same monarchy as Denmark. And so the myth was that these were two independent states under the same king, but the king appointed the ministers and they were all Danes. So I, I may be simplifying a bit, but that essentially was the story. And so I was very skeptical of, about whether we should even think about Iceland as a crypto colony. It is true, because after all, these conditions have modern consequences too, that Iceland, Greece, and Thailand had economic crises at almost exactly the same time. So that might prompt some uh, interesting reflection. I don't know. But in any case, I went to the conference. I had a marvelous time. My hosts were very generous. I gave a keynote address in which I said that the diagnostic feature of crypto-colonialism is this cry of never having been colonized. There was a lot of discussion that went on. And then suddenly, a historian, who I am assured is quite a progressive historian, jumped up and in ringing tones declaimed, but Iceland never was a colony. And of course, the entire audience erupted into laughter because he really proved my point there. And then even I was convinced. And so as I start work now on my next book, which is about crypto-colonialism and will be an exploration of how one might usefully uh, 
use the term, Iceland will in fact be a candidate. But I do want to emphasize that I don't develop these terms in order to use them in some kind of dictatorial and absolute way. Uh, to me, the question is not, is, for example, China a crypto colony or not? Or was it a crypto colony? Is Greece, is Thailand? Those essentialist questions don't get us very far. The question I would like to ask is, what do we gain by thinking of a country as a crypto colony? And I think what we gain is a better appreciation of the extent to which culture can actually be used as a tool. It's not soft power at all. It's a form of structural violence that can sometimes damage a country in very humiliating ways. The idea that people felt that to be modern, they had to address, uh, to adopt Western dress, certainly is true for Greece, Turkey, Thailand. Um, it's, it's true, of course, also for the real post-colonies. But here is the other feature that is important. The real post-colonies, the ones that are unambiguously post-colonial, Nigeria, India, Pakistan, uh, Vietnam, uh, the Congo, right? Uh, uh, these countries have no problem in identifying a point of rupture with the colonial past. Now think about Greece and Thailand. Greece can point to a point of rupture with the Ottoman past, but its long struggle to gain some degree of independence of a continent that is forcing it to act the role of revered ancestor, putting itself, as I said, in another context on a pedestal rather than admitting that it was being tied to a tethering post, that's a very, that's a very humiliating position to be in. And I think it's a sign of how far Greece has come that nowadays Greek politicians don't have to justify everything they say in terms of what the ancient Athenians would have said. But that's actually something that was quite real until fairly recently. Um, one of the great achievements uh, of the post-dictatorship period in Greece was the abolition of the purest language, which wasn't actually ancient Greek at all. In fact, it, it, it's... Syntax was structured partly on the lines of French and German, uh, on the implicit understanding that since, after all, Western Europe had taken our culture away from us, it's time for us to take it back, even if it's in the form of grammatical rules. So, um, uh, you know, and, and in, in, in Thailand, you don't have that. You have, of course, more or less formal registers of language. Um, but it's, it's, it's also true that, that in Thailand there's a royal language, Ratasap, which is used for uh, uh, anything concerning the royal family. And, um, uh, but, it, but it hasn't been used as, as cynically as I think the Greek purist language known as Katharavasa was used, which basically was a way of keeping resources away from the economically and politically disadvantaged. Anyway, that's... Those are the rather complicated dimensions of the comparison. It clearly does come to bear pretty directly on this book because, as you say, if there's no sort of point of rupture where an external overtly colonizing force can be then broken free of, then you have this sort of cultural drift, shall we say, that opens a space for communities, quote unquote, on the ground to point and say, actually, you've drifted away from the national character. We are the ones who are the bearers of tradition. And that so, is exactly, yeah. yeah, 
No, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. I just if well, you can I, reflect I, I, on that. I, I think I'm just agreeing with you. In fact, I mean, I think what's really interesting here is uh, precisely uh, that feeling that the bureaucrats do not represent real Thai tradition. Um, it's, that's less strong in Greece. In fact, Greeks will tell you that having uh, an efficient bureaucracy is one of their besetting problems. But um, uh, still, I think that the people in Zonjana, for example. Uh, would say that the not so much the cultural bureaucrats, but that the police and politicians and many politicians were um, forcing them to do things that were contrary to the values that they understand as being the values of honor and decency among Greeks. So, for example, politicians uh, certainly were. Uh, making conditions for trying to use their influence to get sheep thieves and it, later on cannabis growers uh, uh, off uh, uh, legal, uh, out of their legal difficulties, keep them out of jail. Um, the other thing to remember is that for the bureaucrats in the Greek state, the politicians are also a problem because the politicians, in order, uh, in, in a totally illegal way, perhaps, but in order to collect lots of votes, they do favors for shepherds in the large clans, because then those clans, the members of those clans, feel that they are obligated to um, uh, to vote for that politician. So the state is also afraid of patrilineal kinship. Now, here's a technicality that non-anthropologists, I think, would find rather baffling, but let's give it a go, because I think it's also central to the conversation. So in, in Greece, as in every other European country, and pretty much around the world now, the state favors a cognatic type of kinship in which links through male and female members uh, are e equally respected. And there's no distinction made between relatives on your mother's side and relatives on your father's side, for example. But in, locally, in a few areas, including uh, at least two parts of Greece, namely Western and Western Central Crete and the Mani in southern Peloponnese, you do have these clan structures. And they are a double threat uh, to the state because, on the one hand, the politicians, as I say, can manipulate them. And that tends to make them compact. And so the other danger, then, is that uh, they also control and manage violence in a way that contravenes the laws of the state. Now, in, in Thailand, you don't have that kind of kinship structure. But what you have instead is also a bit threatening, I think, to the state, which is, for example, Pomahakan represented itself to me as one family. Now, the Thai word for family, Krokrua, it means the people who sit around a hearth together. They met all the time. They had community meetings all the time. They showed that they were capable of formal organization. It's possible that the way they sat around in circles at those meetings with the older people at a higher physical level, always representing that high-low duality in Thai symbolism, was itself a faint shadow of the old man. But in any case, uh, it represented a form of solidarity that meant that the community was successful for 25 years in defying the city and a city, a city administration that actually, for a lot of the time, also had the support of the national state. Um, 
by using various legal methods. They lost most uh, of their legal cases, except one where they sued a newspaper for defamation. But um, uh, they knew how to play the game. And at the same time, they were maintaining this sense of being one big family, extended family, not in the literal sense of blood relatives, but again, people who would sit around the hearth together. So when there were communal activities, there would be food served in the open air uh, in the central space that was the meeting place of the community. So I think that represented an implicit threat too. And maybe that also partly why the bureaucrats kept poo-pooing uh, the idea that their role as food vendors was part of a traditional way of being Thai. I don't know. I'm just guessing there. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So several times in our conversation now, you've you've alluded to these sort of negative media representations and negative discourses around these two communities. So in the case of Crete, there's sort of labels of these are goat thieves and cannabis growers. And in the case of Bangkok, uh, there's accusations that these are wife beaters and addicts and prostitutes and things like that. And um you know, that's sort of interesting in its own right to track those discourses, but you also make clear that this has very real and often violent consequences. So on page 22 of the book, you write, the label became a libel. The libel became a pretext. And what's sort of tragic in the two case studies you're charting is that both of them do have these points of culmination in real state violence. Um, you a little bit about the, the case in Crete following the murder of the police officer, but maybe you could just talk about what those culminations were in both of these cases, particularly since we talked about Crete a bit, the demolition of Pomahakan's community. Right. And the Cretan case, in any case, was not as terminal, partly because Crete, Greece, as I say, is a, the kind of democracy in which the destruction of an entire village would actually cause such outrage, even by people who had been taught to hate the very name of Zonyanada. I don't think it would be possible. Um, in the case of Pomahakan, there was legal grounds. The state was on very firm legal ground in expelling the community. But right up to the last minute, they kept negotiating about the possibility of preserving uh, several beautiful examples of vernacular Thai architecture in, the, uh, in, in that space. And in the end, what they pulled it all down. They destroyed everything in what I call a case of cultural vandalism. I also talk in the book about uh, what I call uh, bureaucratic nostalgia. Uh, there are signs now uh, in the empty lawn that was created where once there had been a vibrant living community that say, here was a street of, and then there's a profession, gold smelters or, I don't know, birdcage makers. I can't remember now what the signs were, but they were Trilingual, which is interesting too. So this was constructing nostalgia for tourists as well as for, for locals in Thai, English, and Chinese. Because Chinese tourism, of course, has become very important in Thailand in recent years. Um, it seems to me that uh, the, uh, the, the municipal government of Bangkok never had any intention of allowing those houses to stay. Yes, they were originally put up in a community that had been sanctioned by royal decree under Rama III. Yes, they had probably been inhabited by royal bureaucrats in the early stages, but they were examples of vernacular architecture. And uh, Thailand exhibits what I would call, in a Weberian sense, a kind of Protestant 
Buddhism. And what I mean by that is that just as in Weber's description of Protestantism, uh, we know that who is the elect of God because they are prosperous, and the fact that they're prosperous means now that they must have been they must have been good people. Uh, and uh, indeed, we see the same thing in the United States in uh, the so-called uh, prosperity gospel, right? Same idea. It is very Weberian in a funny kind of way. Um, so also in this Protestant type of, of Buddhism, there is the idea very widespread among the bourgeoisie in Bangkok in particular that uh, people who are who were morally good in a previous life now are entitled to the privileges they enjoy. This is their karma. This is their gamma. And, uh, you know, this is, this is what it means in Thai to be, uh, in the Thai expression, pudi, a good person, right? That expression is very indicative. The moral goodness is demonstrated in this life by your prosperity, which is a sign of your moral goodness in the previous lives. So the assumption seems to be that there's a kind of karmic predestination that means that anything that's vernacular represents what is less good and therefore isn't worth preserving. So the result is that the class war, because Pamma Khan is without question the victim of a class war, among other things, also now transmits itself to the definition of what national heritage is. Uh, it, this is very different from what we see in a country like Italy, where um, historic conservation does, in fact, attend to the uh, building styles of a whole range of social classes. Uh, in Greece, it's been ambivalent, but there also have been attempts made to, uh, especially in recent years, to be more inclusive. In Thailand, I think the uh, finance department, which plays a very similar role there to the archaeological service in Greece, was certainly sympathetic to letting people uh, stay on in, in, in the community. They Actually, people in the finance department told me that they thought it was a better way to preserve the, the houses. But once the people were gone, then somehow there was nothing left to protect the houses. And even the intervention of the Association of Siamese Architects, which is a very prestigious body, failed to stop the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration from uh, this act of, as I say, cultural vandalism. I think there's no other way to describe it. Mm. And I've not yet met anyone who would disagree with me about that description. Now, the other side of this, of course, is that the um, the calumnies that were launched against the uh, both communities were developed over time in a fairly clear pattern. That is, they begin with officials saying very loudly whenever they can, these people are bad. So when I went to Pomahakan for the first time, and I, I called the city clerk because she'd been very kind to me, a very aristocratic lady. I called her to tell her that I was there. She said, oh, the professor shouldn't be in Pomahakan. Those people are. And then she starts describing all the terrible things. And you, you know, and I happen to know that the same person walked past the community every day, deliberately not looking at it. So she had... This was willful ignorance. She didn't know what was there because the state was beginning to build up the idea that this was a dangerous place full of dangerous people and something would have to be done about it. Greece is doing the same thing, uh, first of all, in that district of Athens I was talking about and also with Sonia Not in those cases, obviously, to launch wholesale destruction, but perhaps to launch quasi-military activities to root out 
the sources of resistance to state authority. Uh, but the, it's done in ways that get public sympathy. So certainly one newspaper at least reported after the destruction of Pomahakan that some people locally were saying, good riddance. You know, they were terrible people. They were mafia. They were this, they were that. Uh, there are lots of people in Crete who will tell you that the Zonyani are awful. My knowledge of both communities is that the majority of people in both communities are decent, affectionate, intelligent, welcoming people. I never had any problems with them as communities in either case. And I think that uh, it is time that bureaucracies learned to treat these kinds of communities with respect. Indeed, the, the, the one, uh, there was one governor of Bangkok, uh, Apirak Kosayotin, who uh, unfortunately got stabbed in the back before he could really do anything, who had actually come to an agreement uh, with the community and with the finance university, Salapakon University, to, um, uh, to, to allow the residents to stay put. But then with the coups in 2006 and 2014, uh, that hope vanished pretty quickly. Um, and I was thinking at the time that, because he really wanted to reform the bureaucracy, I suspect that's why they stabbed him in the back. Um, and his attitude to Pomahakan didn't please them either. But I uh, uh, remember thinking that and saying that to reform the bureaucracy, it would be necessary to get these bourgeois bureaucrats to live in these communities long enough so they would actually learn to treat these people as human beings uh, and not uh, to, to use the, the condescending attitudes that for the residents were redolent of nothing so much as the old feudal system, the Saktina system of, of, uh, of old Siam. The idea that density somehow breeds crime, breeds something unpleasant, um, makes me always makes me think of Mary Douglas's idea that dirt is matter out of place. You know, therefore, we can't have density packed communities in the heart of a civilized place. Forgetting that the notion of civilization here again is as defined in the West. Now, I am sure that uh, many. Uh, Greeks, uh, sorry, many Thais and many Greeks, for that matter, would say, "Well, uh, you know, we know what civilization is, and I respect that." Of course, I'm not saying that either in either country the establishments become a total dupe, but I do think that there's been a certain amount of coercion in adopting these kinds of practices. Certainly, in the era of Pibun, uh, there was lots of pressure to adopt Western dress, for instance, and that. Again, establishments were colluding in this because that was where their own power resided. Mm. And Ipomahakan uh, is a late example, if you will, of one of these crypto-colonial effects. Um, and I think the people in Ipomahakan knew very well that the bureaucrats represented something that uh, had to do at least with Western influence uh, on their country and not necessarily in a good way. That leads pretty nicely into the very complicated politics of subversive archaism, because in the book, you're really clear to say that it's not exactly left wing or right wing in the way that we traditionally think of those terms. And it's also not exactly populism the way we tend to understand that term. So how would you characterize the politics of subversive archaism and these kinds of appeals to the past? 
I don't think that it fits any of those labels. I've also tried to distinguish it from uh, James Holston's insurgent citizenship, for example, uh, from social banditry in Eric Holmes' language. You know, I think it is a new category. Now, again, I don't want to be absolutist about this. All of these things shade off into each other in various ways. You can probably find uh, quite fascist versions of subversive archaism. But what strikes me about these two communities is that they are actually inclusive in ways in which the state often is not. So uh, in Zonyana, uh, I didn't see any hostility to migrants. Now, of course, they are far away from areas where there are big concentrations of migrants. But I think they see the right attitude to migrants as being their value of hospitality, on which they place a great deal of emphasis. More impressively, perhaps, in Bomahakan, the after the tsunami in 2004, the, the community president made a speech in which he exhorted mm-hmm. the residents to raise money uh, with an auction of old clothes. I mean, remember, this is a community of really poor people now being asked to raise money. Uh, but he said, you know, we're in a community of suffering That's what we have in common. So we shouldn't be looking at whether these people are Thai or foreign. We shouldn't be looking at whether they're Buddhist or Muslim or Christian. We share with them the experience of suffering. What was interesting is that the next day was National Children's Day, and the kids were reciting poems, and at least one of them picked up that theme. Now, whether that was written for him by the president or one of the teachers, I don't know. But it was impressively different uh, from what one heard most of the time. And, you know, Thailand and Greece both face serious issues, uh, both in their collective impression management, but also in how they manage the influxes of these populations of, of, of migrants. So um, that's one reason why I would certainly distinguish subversive archaism, as I've encountered it, from right-wing populism. Although, again... You know, to be very clear, these are categories for use, not for imposition. Uh, I think it's useful to talk about subversive archaism because what it points out is a paradox, that sometimes people can play the state at its own game and especially use the state's own language of culture to push back at the state. Uh, that's really what this is about in both cases. Um, and I'll leave the questions of legality to legal experts, although, again, uh, I don't think there's any question but that the people in Pomahakan were technically breaking the law. There's certainly no question but that stealing sheep is illegal and uh, getting into a knife fight is going to get get you into jail, probably in in serious trouble, even if you don't end up killing someone. Killing a policeman, of course, uh, caused howls of outrage and growing uh, drugs illegally at the moment, uh, may prompt the comment, but look, you know, in Canada, it's allowed. But that's, Canada's not Greece. Greece is not Canada. So, you know, as an analyst, uh, with full respect also as a foreigner doing research in these countries, although I, you know, I'm no longer entirely a foreigner in Greece because I've become a Greek citizen. Um, but I feel, you know, that, that some respect is is. Uh, important also for the law, and also because I do have some sympathy for those bureaucrats. I mean, they are usually rather low down in the hierarchy, 
in Thailand in particular, my sense was that many of them were terrified of putting a step wrong, that there is a, almost a culture of fear in some of the uh, uh, offices that deal with these kinds of issues, and that they're between a rock and a hard place. That said, very clearly, some of them also saw themselves as gaining advantage either through promotion or on the other side getting favors, doing favors for the local people. I mean, you can call it corruption, you can call it pragmatic negotiation, you can call it any number of things, but certainly there was some collusion as well. And what's interesting about that collusion is that in both countries it reproduces the collusion of the establishment with a colonial power that wants to delegitimize uh, the uh, the countries, or threatens to delegitimize the country's uh, form of government as a pretext for invasion. So what the government does in the local community, it has already suffered at the hands of the colonial powers. It reproduces it. Mm-hmm. That, by the way, also uh, leads to various forms of internal uh, colonialism. So uh, the relationship between Bangkok and the Deep South in Thailand is very problematic and can be addressed, I think, in analogous terms, not the same terms, but analogous terms. The same is also true, mutatis mutandis, for Greece and Turkey's interventions in Cyprus, both of which are, in most cases, deeply resented by many Turkish and Greek Cypriots. So, you know, these are very complicated uh, embedded hierarchies of inequality. There are forms of inequality that are embedded in other inequalities. And I think that the value of both terms, crypto-colonialism and subversive archaism, lies precisely in the way it enables to winkle out some causative uh, links between these different levels, between these different, different types of scale, if you will. As we approach the the end of our conversation here, there's one more term in the book that I'd love you to just sort of reflect on, and that's what you call vicarious fatalism. You sort of critique this on the part of states themselves, and interestingly for me, you also point out the fact that this tends to creep into critical scholarship as well. So could you just reflect a little bit about what is vicarious fatalism as you're using it? I'm I'm glad you asked me that, uh, Ben, because I uh, uh, actually am now contemplating possibly even writing a book about just that, uh, and that would probably be the main title. So what I mean by vicarious fatalism is the assumption that those with power make about those over whom they exercise power, that one justification for that inequality lies in the fatalism of the dominated, of the subaltern. And you see this in a whole variety of ways. Uh, I used to joke that people to the east of you were always more fatalistic. So Western Europeans saw the Balkans as fatalistic, the Balkans saw the Turks that way, the Turks saw the Arabs that way, and so on, all the way down to Southeast Asia. Um, And that is a little bit of symbolic geography that you can add to the symbolic geography of north and south, for example, you know, global north and global south and so on, Um, and terms like east and west, all of which are very problematic and very, very generalizing. But I think there is a much more substantive issue there, which is that when people exercise power over a particular group, when an institution in particular exercises power over a group of people, one very effective way of justifying that uh, that dominion, that domination, 
to others exercising power elsewhere is to say, look, we had to lead them out of the ignorance that their passivity had left them in. So calling somebody a fatalist is to say, well, they just resigned themselves to fate. Now, here's my counter-argument. Neither of these communities resigned themselves to anything. The people in Bomakan, if you follow Western uh, stereotypes of Asians, they would pr probably lead you to expect the people of Bomakan just to sit back and let it happen. This is a misreading of the belief in predestination. Just as the bourgeoisie is using the notion of karma proactively to try to put those scoundrels in their place, so to speak, so the people uh, in, in power in Greece were trying to, in the old days, would talk about the fatalism of villages, and certainly nothing fatalistic about the Zonyani, I can assure you. Um, so it seems to me that wherever you see uh, an attempt to try to uh, explain uh, people's subjugation as a result of passivity, it probably actually originates with those who are subjugating them or who have subjugated them. So that's really what I mean by vicarious uh, fatalism. It's vicarious because you're, you're saying it's not, I'm saying it's not their fatalism, it's being wished on them by others. And you see this across a very large range of situations. I'm glad you also mentioned that it's creeping into scholarly discourse. In fact, it's always been there because the Orientalism of the 19th century was full of that kind of talk. Um, I first raised this issue, actually, I think, in a book I published in 1987 called Anthropology Through the Looking Glass. And there was an outrageous comparison because I was comparing Greece with anthropology as two discursive spaces thrown up by uh, by um, colonialism and treated uh, by everyone else as marginal. Anthropology is the marginal social science. Greece as, if you will, the black sheep of Europe. Uh, anthropology still struggles to some extent with its more objectivist sister, sister social sciences. Um, and Greece now, I think, is emerging from uh, what was a very humiliating position in the European Union. Um, People who are described as fatalists are actually using the idea of, dest of destiny proactively themselves. How? What they're doing is saying, we will go on struggling. We don't intend to give in. But just in case we do give in, we want something to be established in advance, that it wasn't our fault, that it was the fault of destiny, it was the fault of, of luck, it was the fault of karma. So they will play into that fatalism only as a proactive tool. That is quite the opposite of being fatalists, right? They're playing, in, they're playing into that discourse, but they're playing it their way. They're seizing the discourse and using it proactively uh, to protect their own interests. Uh, and people do this all the time. So when a Greek has to deal with a, with a bureaucratic problem, they'll often say, it's hopeless, we're not going to get anywhere with this, uh, but I have to try uh, but you know what the bureaucrats are like. They don't listen. They treat us like dirt, blah, blah, blah. Less so now than in earlier times, but still, and you still hear those conversations also in Thailand. But that is a mask for the fact that the struggle continues. And I think the stories of both Zanyana and Pamahakan demonstrate to the full that these people are very far from being fatalists in the ordinary sense of that word. I would put it to you 
there may not be even a single fatalist in the world today in the in the literal sense of that word. On that note, by way of a last question, what do you see as the future of these two communities, if you're willing to venture a, a speculation? I am. Uh, I don't yet know what's happening with Pomarkan. There was some talk about regrouping in another space. That will be problematic because it was precisely their location at the point of rupture between the old Meung and the modern national capital that I think lent real spice to their claims on history let's say. In the case of Zonyana, uh, the village has survived. Meat is expensive in, in Greece as everywhere else. Uh, they are living quite well. They don't actually need to cultivate drugs in order to be prosperous. They are beginning to develop some forms of local tourism. It's never going to be their major source of income. Um, and they have also done something else that's very interesting. They have moved into especially the city of Heraklion, which is the largest uh, city on, on the island. Um, many of them now, instead of migrating between winter quarters and summer quarters, drive their cars between Heraklion and the village. It's about an hour and a half away by car, maybe less if you're a really daredevil driver. And they live congregated in one part of Heraklion, which was actually raided at the same time as the village because it was seen as an extension. What's interesting is uh, that, you know, here's an interesting example of where the, the kinship model is so important. So the clan names are, have become, of course, their surnames. So uh, these many of these Zonyani who live part of the time in Heraklion own shops. They don't need to buy protection because simply a recognizably Zonyana surname terrifies everybody else. And so their shops are left unmolested. So that has worked to their advantage. Where it doesn't work to their advantage is when they go up into the hills uh, and sometimes the police do spot checks, maybe to shake them down, maybe because they're looking for illegality and prepared to punish it. And if they see a Zonyana surname, they'll get the person to climb out of the car and they'll humiliate them. At one point, they were even doing things like making them dance at the point of a gun and so on. Um, and, and, and this sort of thing... Uh, obviously, it's a disadvantage. So the double-edged nature of their, what I now call spectral polity, this non-state polity, um, continues to function in both ways, good and bad, for them. In the case of Pomahakan, they've been removed from the physical site that gave some sense of substance to their spectral polity, but I think that if they were to reconstitute themselves as a community, it would, of course, be a, a core. It would probably have to make itself more obviously a tourist site in order to, to gain any traction, and that remains to be seen. When I last saw the community president, he was depressed, exhausted, and then, you know, after that, he didn't really want to talk to anyone. So... Uh, I'm not optimistic that they can pull it off, but it'll be interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see whether they're allowed to or whether they're seen as so dangerous that they have to be prevented at all costs from regrouping. That I doubt. I think that the last thing the government would want to do now is to draw renewed attention to them. But it will indeed be interesting to see whether they succeed in regrouping themselves. A lot of them, of course, had already left the community by the time the final demolition took place. And so 
some of those people will now be reluctant to move into a, an enclosed space again because they've created new links, uh, found new work. Uh, but uh, again, <coughs> a lot will depend on, on how successful they've been in doing that. And I, that I don't yet know. Before we conclude, is there anything else you want to mention that I haven't gotten a chance to ask about yet? Well, I think you've covered a lot of the major issues, and uh, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, I would say that, uh, again, I don't want to see these categories like subversive archaism, vicarious fatalism, uh, cryptocolonialism becoming hardened, the kind of hardened terms that academics sometimes use in a purely nominalistic way. Uh, I think they're useful concepts. Uh, the, the very oddness of the comparison between Zonyana and Pom Mahakan, uh, I think, should provoke new forms of comparison. I think the purpose of a book like this is not so much to provide answers to all the questions, which obviously one can't do, but to open up areas of inquiry that had not been suspected before. Uh, the advantage of talking about subversive archaism is it allows us to pull back a little bit from the view that's subconsciously adopted so widely that all representations of heritage are operated by official actors. In fact, there are a lot of people who have ideas about heritage of their own. They may be mimicking the discourse of the state, but and that may be a little bit like what Homi Baba and others have called uh, colonial mimicry, you know. But it's, um, in other words, it's mimicry as a way of pushing back against any level of hegemony. But I think the concept uh, is useful also as we begin to think about uh, other countries. At the moment, my larger project is to pursue crypto-colonialism rather than uh, than subversive archaism, and I want to see if other people will, will use either of these terms. Crypto-colonialism, of course, there are other countries in which I don't have experience, uh, one, of course, in which you have much more experience than I do, namely Nepal, uh, which I hope to visit in the not-too-distant future, and I'd like to visit before I actually complete the book. I have connections there that I, I think I can usefully deploy. Uh, but... Um, uh, you know, when you write a book, once it's out of your hands, interpretation will flow, and you can either react or not react, depending on how useful you think it's going to be. I just want this to be a contribution to uh, a better understanding of the relationship between the modern so-called nation-state, the bureaucratic ethno-national state, on the one hand, and local communities on the other. And those relationships cover a wide gamut. I mean, there are many communities that have a very comfortable relationship with the nation-state structure and have derived great advantage from it. But those that haven't, I think, often resort to uh, tactics like subversive archaism, and this perhaps will give us a better understanding of why this happens and whether, and this is perhaps the last thing I'd like to add, the state might do better to reconsider its own attitude and not be quite so convinced that it's always right. Well, we appreciate you taking so much time to go through the book with us and walk us through your ideas. We hope you'll come back when the crypto-colonialism book is out um, and discuss a little bit more about that with us. Until then, Michael Hertzfeld, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the channel. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Ben. It's my pleasure.
That was Michael Hertzfeld, the author of the new book, Subversive Archaism, published this year by Duke University Press. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we'd love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time. <laughs>